Today on What the Hack, join us as we unravel the mysteries of deception and the subconscious tendencies that make us all vulnerable. We talk to Dr. Daniel Simons, co-author of a new book called Nobody's Fool, to learn why we get scammed. And learn how to stay safe by thinking the way a scammer thinks. So welcome to What the Hack, a show about hackers, scammers, and the people they go after. I'm Adam Levin. I'm Bo Friedlander. And I'm Travis Taylor. Today we have one of the co-authors of the book, Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It. Please welcome Daniel Simons. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you so much for coming. We're delighted to have you here and we're particularly excited to talk to you about your new book, The Psychology of Scams and How People Can Better Insulate Themselves from Falling for Scams. Dan, I am interested in the nature of deception as you discuss it in your book. I mean, I guess it can range from everything. There's a there's a wide, there's a kaleidoscopic uh, selection of things that can happen from Ponzi schemes to political misinformation to disinformation. What exactly is a scam? And, and, and is it different from a con or, uh, you know, other negative things that can happen in the realm of information? There, there's a wide range, as you say. And what we're more interested in broadly is the nature of deception and how we get deceived. And that can take the form of cons, which we think of as sort of the more grand sort of impersonation or pretending to be somebody that you aren't or pretending to do something you aren't. Scams, which might be much more simplistic, just trying to take people in in lots of different ways, as well as just deception, which might be completely inadvertent, where somebody might mislead somebody without even realizing they've done it in the first place. So I view cons as kind of a combination of scams that last over a long time that are much more complex. Okay, so but what's the most common thing that you come across in, in, in Nobody's Fool? What do you really... What, what, what am I going to walk away and say, okay, I really understand blank. Okay, so I think there's a key principle that we are trying to get at in this book that um, we think is missed by a lot of the other coverage of scams, cons, deception, which is that the vast majority of the movies and podcasts and stories and articles about scams focus on the dynamics of the scam itself, right? So if you watch a con movie, you are following the action almost as if you're watching a narrative and a storyline and you know from the outset what it is. What we're trying to do is gather information about deception in a wide, wide range of contexts to see if there's any commonalities about the people who fall for it, not just in their personality, but in terms of their thinking and how they think about scams. So I think the one, if there's one big point here, it's that it's really easy to look at a scam from the outside and say, yeah, the person who fell for it, they were gullible. They didn't spot the red flags they should have. But in reality, we all can be targeted because all forms of deception take advantage of how we think and reason by default in naturally good ways. So I think one thing that we try and focus on is what is it that leads us to be deceived by looking at commonalities across many forms of deception as opposed to going into depth and looking at why somebody fell for a particular scam. So is there a particular kind of person who falls for things like this? Well, it's a good question. There's certainly going to be a range of skepticism versus sort of openness or willingness to believe things, right? And some people are going to be more willing to fall for things than others or, or more willing to accept as true something that's not. But I think one of the key insights here is that we all can be targeted by scams and cons, uh, more often by scams and just deception. 
we all can be targeted if they happen to tap into the sorts of things we're interested in or that we want. So any of us can recognize something is too good to be true if it's kind of implausible to us. But all of us can also find something to be just good enough to be plausible if it's framed correctly. So what I'm hearing is there is no like this. There are a, a panoply of situations, and depending on where you are in your day or your life, you may or may not be susceptible. Exactly. I mean, most people, for example, are not going to respond to an email from a Nigerian prince promising a share of their inheritance. Right. Most people won't. Some people will. I always do. No. <laughs> yeah. If, if Some people will only because they want to kind of scam the scammer. Yeah. But uh, a lot of times, those sorts of scams, it might appeal to somebody and they might respond to it. But that same person, under different conditions, hours later or a day later, might not. Right. And it really depends on whether it catches people at the right moment in the right way that they respond to it. Some people will never respond to that sort of email because they recognize it immediately as too good to be true. But those same people could be victimized by something that seemed completely plausible to them and implausible to somebody who would respond to a Nigerian prince scam. In terms of the research for the book, I'm wondering what surprised you the most? For me, it was how consistent uh, all of, across all of these forms of deception over you know, thousands of years, right? Everything from the Trojan horse on up, uh, that they all rely on a small set of principles right, that um, are pretty consistent. So I think that's a positive, right? It means that if we can understand how these sorts of deceptions take advantage of the way we think and the way we reason and the kinds of information we find appealing, then as new variants of these things emerge, we'll be able to better spot those consistencies, right? So I think that's Something that for me was a bit surprising how how well it holds together when you look across everything from art forgeries to chess cheaters, that they all kind of rely on a similar set of tactics. And the big ones, like the, the long-running sort of scams and cons, rely on a lot of them, whereas other sorts of deception might just rely on one or two at a time. Now, are we talking about hope, uh, despair, uh, love, um, all the, 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 you know, the Shakespearean and or uh, Greek tragedy type stuff, or what are we talking about? I think hopes and, and wishes and fears have to underlie most of these sorts of things. They put us in the right mindset to be targeted. Um, but what we're talking about more is what leads us to say, yeah, that's appealing. Yes, I'm going to believe that and not ask another question or check it out. Right. So we're focusing more on the thinking aspect of it than on the motivation. So we're not so much interested in the personality of a con artist or of the victim. Right? We're interested in the cognitive mechanisms, how we think, what our habits of thought are, and what sorts of information we inherently find appealing, often for really good reason. So can you walk us through that small set of principles that make scams work? So we divide these sort of cognitive principles into what we call habits, which are cognitive tendencies, things we do really well and they're really useful most of the time, but that can be turned against us and hooks, which are kinds of information that we find inherently appealing, and that most of the time that's a good thing. They draw our attention to the things we care about, but that again, if somebody's looking to deceive us, they can present information that we find appealing when it shouldn't actually be trustworthy. And all of these sorts of cognitive tendencies, habits, and hooks are premised on the idea that we mostly accept what other people are telling us as true. Right. We, by default, assume that we're interacting with people who are being honest with us, that the things we encounter in the world are truthful, and we, it takes effort to stop and think to yourself, well, maybe I shouldn't believe that. Maybe that's not true. 
Okay, so the first principle is that the person we're talking to or communicating with is for real and what they're saying is true. Exactly. And, and we tend to do that by default very quickly. And it takes effort to kind of say, oh, wait a second, they're, they're potentially lying to me. And this is true not just of other people, but of everything we encounter in our daily lives. Dan, right? so, Dan, it's true of the, I, this morning, there was a coyote in my upper field and he was limping with his back leg. And when I got out of the car, he took off not limping. Uh, <laughs> he was trying to con me out of the car, little yeah. jerk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they do it. So we see it in wildlife all the time. Animals have ruses in order to get, uh, you know, something to happen generally in the terms of hunting. And I guess scams are a form of hunting, aren't they? In, in a lot of ways, yeah. Um, and the, the key element of that is that it makes sense to believe it's true most of the time because cons and deceptions and scams are relatively rare, hmm. right? Most of us are never going to be a victim of a large con, right? Most of us are never going to be, never going to fall for Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme. Most of us can't Some afford will. to fall for them. <laughs> a lot of us, a lot of us don't have that opportunity. Yeah, like most of us the, are not going to have the ante. Yeah, exactly. I mean, most of us are never going to try and purchase, you know, really expensive fine art and buy a forgery by mistake. And most of us aren't going to invest in Theranos. That's right. Yeah. yeah, and most of us don't have the opportunity to be scammed in those big ways. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, we have plenty of opportunities to be scammed in small ways, but this idea that we accept as true what we see and what we hear makes a lot of sense because we can't go around our daily lives constantly double-checking everything, right? We can't go into the grocery store and disbelieve everything on the packaging of a product, right? I mean, we could, but we'd never get out of the grocery store, right? If you go and buy some fruit and it says that it's organic, you're probably not going to go out to the farm and monitor the farmer 24 hours to make sure that there's no pesticides being used, right? We have to just accept that some of these things are true, and they might not be, and most of the time it doesn't matter. So it's a really good default assumption to have because it allows us to have a conversation. It allows us to interact with other people and be a part of a community. It does mean that somebody who's looking to deceive us, whether it's a con artist or you know, a magician, will say things that simply aren't true right? in order to get you to believe what they want you to believe, to focus your attention where they want to focus it. So that's a precondition for any act of deception is this willingness to believe. Okay, so I'm hearing one principle. There has to be more to it, though. Yeah, I think that's the underlying principle that affects everything. You can't have deception without a willingness to take what people are telling you as true, right? And when people are deceiving you, they're presenting something as true that's not, right? That, that's kind of the fundamental aspect of it. But the cognitive tendencies are a bit different. There are things that we do all the time that most of the time work great. So, for example, we have a cognitive tendency to focus, right? which is to pay attention to the information we have right in front of us and often to not think about the information we don't have in front of us. And most of the time that works great because what we actually want to do is focus on what we're dealing with and not be distracted by irrelevant stuff. But that means that if somebody wants you to believe something in particular, all they have to do is put that information in front of you and keep you busy with it and have you not think about what you're missing. Can you give us an example? Here's one example. Imagine uh, you're at a, a psychic performance. You've gone to see the psychic who helps people commune with the dead, right? Well, what do they do in that performance? They rattle off a whole bunch of things at once until somebody in their audience says, oh yeah, that, that was me, that fits me. And then they zero in on that person and talk about nothing but that person and how they were right about them. 
What does that do? It draws the audience's attention just to that one case and not all of the guesses that they'd missed up to that point. So if they say, is there a Rob, a John, a Frank, a George? Oh yeah, there's a George, right? That's all they focus on at that point. Right? And it's a great tactic. And magicians essentially do this all the time, right? They're directing your attention. So all, a lot of magic works by misdirection. Well, that's really just focus, right? They're focusing your attention on one thing and you're not being asked about anything else, right? And you don't think about those other things. It comes out in other contexts where people aren't trying to deceive, but they might inadvertently do that. So a lot of business books are about successful leaders, right? Well, what are those books going to talk about? They're going to talk about all of the things that preceded that person's success, right? And all of the things that they do as a successful person. And we focus in on those success stories and only think about those. We don't think about all of the people who might have done exactly the same thing and didn't become successful leaders. Right? We, might, we don't think about all of the other things that that same person could have done that would have led to success or all the other things they could have done that would have led to failure. We don't think about the information we don't have. We only think about that set of successful things and we don't stop to ask, hey, did those things have anything to do with why they were successful or were they just lucky? They could be lucky or they could have done some homework and picked something or represented themselves in a way that makes someone more likely to be uh, deceived. One of the uh, hooks that we talk about is the hook of familiarity. And having a familiar name, having something we've encountered before makes us somewhat more trusting of it, right? And most of the time, that's a great thing because most of the time that people we're really familiar with are people we have known for a while, we've grown to trust and rely on them because they haven't mistreated us in the past. But these days, what counts as familiar, what counts as a close friend, might be somebody you've never met before, right? It might be somebody you just know on social media and have interacted with virtually, and you've never actually met them or interacted with them in person. And that can lead to a lot of problems. I'm sure you've encountered a lot of romance scams. The victims of those romance scams have never actually met the person that they have been, been in a long relationship with. It's only been virtual, right? And the person might not look or be anything like what they think they are because they're, they gradually build up this sense of familiarity, which leads to a sense of trust. So here's the deal. I use Yahoo Finance. I use it to make money because it works not just because they're a sponsor of the show. Heck, I've been using them for years before they ever called to become a sponsor. I do a lot of investing and I need to make split second financial decisions and that's where Yahoo Finance comes in. I trade stocks and I trade options and you can't trade them in a vacuum. You gotta know what's going on. Yahoo Finance gives you the opportunity to look at the whole picture. I mean, breaking news, editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts. I love the customizable charts. They have it all. At Yahoo Finance, I'm part of a community of over 90 million users. You heard me. 90 million folks use Yahoo Finance because they're helping you on your way to financial success. Visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com, yahoofinance.com. So, Bo and Adam, you guys know I'm a bit of a uh, privacy geek, if you will. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you are. Yeah, totally. I, I really just don't like the idea that just about anyone can find you online, can find out where you live or your email address or your phone number or anything. I just think that entire idea is super creepy. There's so much of my data already out there, but is there something that you can do? 
Yeah, actually, you can use Delete Me. Delete Me is a service that pretty much does the heavy lifting for you, where they go to all the data brokers that they have on file and uh, just pull your data and delete it on a regular basis. I use it. I like it. And they make it quick, easy, and safe to remove your personal data online. Well, yeah, with these data brokers, they can accumulate huge amounts of your personally identifiable information. And if all that information gets into the hands of a bad actor, that opens you up to a lot of risk. And if you act now, you can get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and use promo code WTH. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and enter promo code WTH at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash WTH, promo code WTH, which stands for What the Hack. And we thank you for supporting Delete Me and What the Hack. So in your book, you talk about what's called the possibility grid. And I, yeah. I thought that was fascinating. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is a tool that's designed to just help us realize when we're focusing and not thinking about missing information. Right. So the possibility grid's a simple idea. It just takes a little effort to, to implement for yourself. So uh, imagine a two-by-two two grid. Right. So we can use psychic predictions since we've already talked a little bit about psychics. The top row would be predictions that the psychic made, and then the top left column would be predictions that were true, right? So the psychic predicted that, um, you know, we can, the psychic predicted that there would be a hurricane that would hit Miami in this year. Right. And it did, right? So that's the top left cell of that grid, the top left box. That's the one we tend to focus all of our attention on. That's the one with the success stories of a successful leader, right? The, the activities of a successful leader. But you can also look at what are the predictions that psychic made that didn't come true, that a hurricane would hit Galveston. We need to know how many of those also failed, or also those failed stories, those cases where they predicted something that didn't come true. We need to know about those in order to know whether they're any good at making predictions. We also need to know about the things that they didn't predict that did come true. And there's a great project out of Australia, Richard Saunders helped lead this, where they cataloged a whole bunch of world events, everything from the uh, Indonesian tsunami to 9-11 to a whole bunch of international world events that you'd think if psychics were able to predict the future, they should predict. They then looked at all of the prominent psychics in the Australia area, in the media, in television, YouTube, and looked to see if any of them actually predicted those things. And it turns out, no, they hadn't. Right, so those are the ones that would go in that bottom row of predictions that weren't made, but things that actually happened. And then there's all the predictions that weren't made and that didn't happen, right, which we just don't know about. Right. So if you want to understand whether or not the information you have is complete, you have to look at all four cells. And the idea of the possibility grid is not to necessarily make you kind of calculate all the numbers and figure out all those details. We can't do that for anything most of the time. But what you can do is say, okay, all I've got are things that are success stories. What about the people who did the same thing and failed? What about people who did something different and succeeded? And that will tell you that those, say, executive leadership stories might just be stories. It might turn out that all of those things that were in that front, that top left part of the grid were there, but arbitrary. And that if you took the same people and had them do those things, had them do those things again, they might fail. And 
maybe those things actually hurt your performance, make you less likely to succeed. It's hard to know. But in order to know there's any pattern at all, you have to have all, all of that information. No, we do live in a world where you have people that have made a fortune teaching other people how folks succeeded. But they yep. never talk about, well, these are the folks who didn't succeed, and maybe we should also look at what they might have done wrong as to why they didn't yeah. succeed. Yeah, absolutely. There's a real danger in studying case studies of success, right? In that you can fool yourself into thinking that the things that happened to that one in that one case are representative of all people, or that they're even associated. It may turn out that those things are anti-predictive of success. It may turn out that they actually are worse for you to do. And it might be that that person just got lucky. Are these case studies universal or are these tendencies limited to the U.S. or Western culture? I think we're trying to focus on cognitive tendencies that are fairly universal, that they're just process that we need, right? So these aren't, none of these things like focus are inherently a bad thing, mm -hmm. right? So um, they're things that we need in order to be able to function effectively. Some of the other hooks that we talk about are things like prediction, kind of anticipating future events. That's something we have to do all the time, right? We, we can't function effectively without being able to anticipate what might happen next. And uh, we, we have to form expectations, and that governs how we act, right? So if you expect that it's going to rain tomorrow, you will take an umbrella with you, right? And that's going to be true anywhere. You'll, you'll adapt to the environment appropriately based on your expectations. The same principles will apply in our, in our interactions in social media, right? So if, if, you expect, um, if you expect or believe some pattern to be true and you predict an outcome, you're going to be more receptive to things that are consistent with it you're not going to question them as much as you would if something were completely opposite your predictions. So we tend to challenge things that counter what we believe pretty effectively. We're all pretty good at this, right? We're all pretty good at shooting down that claim that we just don't agree with. And the problem is we're not as good at shooting down claims that we agree with. We don't tend to do that as much. And I think that's probably something that's cross-culturally universal, right? We all are going to have to make predictions. We have to do this. Same thing with commitments, which are just basically strongly held assumptions that we really can't discount, right? Once we've made this strong assumption, we're not as likely to challenge things that are consistent with it. That's going to be true for anybody who makes an assumption anywhere, right? It doesn't have to do with uh, individual differences in that way. Some people are going to be more committed to their beliefs than others. Of course, yeah. And there might be some cultural variation in that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But is it something that's going to be true, at least in some cases, for everyone? Yeah, it kind of has to be. Because we have to be able to do these sorts of things. We have to be able to focus. We have to be able to make predictions. We have to be able to form commitments and stick to them. Right? And efficiency is the last of the hooks. We have to kind of try and act efficiently because we have limited time, limited capacity. So we have to act in ways that allow us to get things done effectively. And scammers really prey on people in particular, where they have an opportunity to make you make a snap decision. Yeah, uh, because, absolutely. Because they create this urgency, and that almost kind of fits in with the whole concept of the efficiency of the thought process. You want to be efficient, exactly. and something happens, you want to move immediately because you think the world is about to end if you don't. Yeah, exactly. And that works in both a positive way and a negative way, right? So um, offers that are expiring in the next hour, or there are only two left, right? are attempting to get you to act with efficiency to kind of pick up on that deal, which is almost never necessary, right? It's almost never that urgent. But in the same way, it can work as a negative, right? So there, there are scams right now that are 
fairly pervasive that involve calling up parents or grandparents or cousins and saying, hey, this kid has been arrested. We need you to send over money to get them out of jail, right? Yeah. There are lots of variants of these, some of them more horrific than others. Um, but all of them are preying on that immediacy. We need you to respond right away. It's an urgent situation. And even the call center scams where you, people will call up and say, you made a mistake on your visa application. The police are coming to arrest you and deport you right now, right? Um, that same sort of scam is putting people under immediate pressure to say, if you pay it off, you can make this go away. And we really like that sort of efficiency, making it go away quickly when you're under pressure to deal with something. That takes, you, takes your opportunity to say, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense, and takes away your ability to check on it really quickly. As far as that's concerned, what advice would you have just for a layperson in terms of how to avoid that uh, tendency to just jump to that action? Yeah, it's, it's really hard because that's, that is our natural tendency to try and resolve a problem. And one thing that I think helps is seeing a whole bunch of examples of how that sort of time pressure works in settings ranging from terrible to completely innocuous, right? So magicians use that all the time, right? They put you under pressure to make a decision right then, and you don't think about it when you're doing it, and that forces you to not think about the other things they're trying to hide from you. Um, anything where it's kind of a rapid decision, which you have to decide on this right now, almost never the case that you need to decide on something right now. For, for things as specific as the sort of call center scams or the, or the kidnapping or your kids in jail, you know, bail scams, there are a couple of things you can do, and, and the best way, I think, to handle those is to make sure that you put yourself in a situation where you can counteract that time pressure quickly. And one of the things that we do is kind of like what growing up I had with my family, which was when, when there was a big scare about stranger kidnappings. We all had a family passphrase so that if somebody came up to you in a car and said, hey, your mom asked me to take you home, you could give them the passphrase, and if they didn't ask for the passphrase, and if they didn't know it, you run, right? Right. Same principle applies, right? Scams really haven't changed all that much. If you have a family passphrase and somebody calls you up and says, hey, your cousin's been in a, you know, been arrested or your kid's been arrested, what's the passphrase? And they'll try and dodge that and get away with it, but it's a way of getting out of that scam and getting rid of the time pressure preemptively, right? Being aware of what you could have happened to you. But that's a really specific solution to a specific kind of problem. I think the bigger thing is just to recognize that time pressure almost always is a bad thing. Right? When somebody's putting you in time pressure, it's almost always a sign that you don't want to rush. So being able to stop and say, okay, wait a second, I need to think about this a little longer is a good mode, a good move to make. It, asking a couple of additional questions um, can, can really make a difference there. So how do you strike a balance between trust and skepticism? Because yeah. if you trust too much, you're in trouble. If you're too skeptical, you have no light. So. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's, that's one danger that I think you commonly see among people who are kind of contrarian is that, well, I'm a skeptic. I'm a contrarian. I'll never fall for any of this. And it's like, well, no, that's not true either. If somebody targets your skepticism, you could absolutely fall for it. There are probably good fake skeptic organizations out there catering to people who believe they're skeptics, right? But we can't be skeptical of everything all the time or we'd never get anywhere. We have to be able to trust other people. And if, I think, again, it's important to keep in mind how rare big cons are, how common probably small forms of deception. And those small forms of deception, most of the time, don't matter enough to most of us to worry about them. So, for example, if a grocery store 
happens to scan prices slightly higher than they were marked on the shelves. For some people, that really matters, and they have to check every penny that they're spending. But if you can afford to lose a couple of dollars here and there when you go grocery shopping, it's probably not worth your effort to cross-check every receipt against every price in the store, because that form of deception just isn't that big a deal. But if you are investing your retirement, it probably does make sense to, cro- to double-check, especially if you're planning on investing your retirement with a money manager who reaches out to you, it probably makes sense to check them out really thoroughly. And I think there's some ways you can kind of think about this, thinking about the big risks are going to be for things that are relatively unregulated, right? So if you're making decisions about things that are relatively unregulated and involve the potential for identity theft or large amounts of money. And those are cases where you can be extra cautious. If you're investing your retirement savings with a giant bank or Vanguard or something like that, those are fairly well-regulated industries. They've been around a long time. The odds that Vanguard is pulling a massive scam on the whole world is probably pretty low. You probably don't need to spend a lot of time checking out the company itself in that context. But if it's just a money manager who a friend of a friend recommended, you probably do want to check them out. And one thing that we found reading through scams in all of these fields is it's remarkable how often people who are pulling off scams and cons have done it before and been caught for it. (laughs) They've actually often been convicted or or charged civilly with scams and fraud, and then they pull it off again. There's a great example of this, a relatively recent example of this, of a Orlando art museum that had an exhibit of uh, Basquiat paintings that uh, had been provided to them. And the FBI relatively recently raided the museum and took all of the paintings because they suspected almost all of them, if, all, if not all of them, were forgeries. The Orlando Museum of Art fired its director after the FBI seized 25 possibly fake paintings on display. The paintings were said to be works of the late artist Jean-Michel Basquiat, but their authenticity is now in question. The New York Times reports a man who initially said he bought the paintings from Basquiat told federal agents he never met the painter. It's not the OMA's job to authenticate art. They came to us authenticated by the top specialists on Basquiat. <laughs> FBI officials now plan to forensically examine the paintings. And the people who provided them to the museum claimed to have found them in a storage locker. Um, and you know, so they were newly discovered and worked with the museum to have an exhibition. And they were planning on selling it for millions of dollars, right? selling these paintings for millions of dollars. Um, Possibly if the museum director had checked out the backgrounds of the people who were selling him the Basquiat's, they might have been a little less likely to work with them because among the several of them, they had about seven convictions and a couple of them for fraud. So this is not an unusual pattern. But that brings me to uh, another wishy-washy part of this world, which is in the art world, for example. Yeah. It's a very thin line between a fraud and uh business as usual. Um, and so, you know, when you look up somebody, let's say you look up a contractor, let's make it a little more, Mm -hmm. uh, run of the mill. You go online and you need some work done around your house. Now, chances are that at the moment you need that work done, you really need it done. So Mm -hmm. you're in a bit of a rush. You got some, you got some stress about it. Now, no one's available. No one's available. No one's available. That person's available. Oh my gosh, that person's available. You look them up, and you see there's a couple of court dates in there that they've that have been made the public record and you think hmm 
you know, and you ask them about them and they say, oh, you know, that was just, you know, people can be really unreasonable. That was one of those. Per that was an unreasonable person. Mm -hmm. You still might go for it. Yeah, you might if you're out of options. That's also a, a good example because what are the what is the information you have in front of you? Right. right? You right. have the information of what they've done in the past and they might tell you about all of their successful contracting projects, right? And you have the information about a couple of cases where people filed suit against them right. for not coming through. And what you should think about then is, what information do I not have? So one question you can ask is, how likely is it that somebody would actually follow through and sue somebody as opposed to just giving up on them and moving on um, in, a, in a court case? Mm -hmm. So the odds are good that if there are a couple of court cases, there are a lot more cases that didn't make it to court. Um, gotcha. So that's something to keep in mind. There might be a lot more cases where they did a great job too, but the ones you care about are the ones where people were upset enough to follow through. And the thing is, it's just like three card Monte or any other uh, trick where I might say, Dan, 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 you know, yes, that woman sued me, but I will give you the number of six people who didn't sue me. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> yep, and, exactly. and you call them up and they're like, oh, Bo, he's great. You know, and they're all people yeah. who are on the take. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I was just out in LA a week or so ago and watching somebody doing three card Monty on, on, you know, Venice beach. Right. And if you watch long enough, and I, I was just kind of, I had nothing else to do for an hour or two. So I was just wandering back and forth and the three card Monty setup would just move down Venice beach. Yep. And every single time, it was this same woman who didn't look anything like the person who was doing the moving the caps around. Um, same person would be the first one to pick and would win like $100 every single time. <laughs> it's the same woman walking down the block. I was in Paris, same situation, same game. And I was watching and I, was, I figured out who the players in the scam were. So I went over and I said, I totally know what's going on here and without missing a beat he showed me a knife <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that was and that was the end of the conversation yeah i often i often feel that way too but you know I, yeah. no but i mean but but and that is part of it is like if you yeah. do if the veil trembles and you look on the other side of it mm -hmm. be careful yeah sure these are criminals who choose to make money through trickery which means they're not the ones who probably probably not the ones who are throwing you up against a brick wall but it it's it's unreasonable to believe they don't know someone who will do that yeah exactly and and the other thing to watch when you're watching three card monty is you should have your hand on your wallet at all times yes. pockets. because mm -hmm. that's a classic place where pickpockets work and they work in tandem with the people doing three card monty yeah so I have a friend, uh, Paulo Robbins, who's a professional thief, right? He, not not in the negative way. He's a gentleman's thief. He's a Vegas performer. He'll, he'll take your watch off your wrist. He'll yeah. take your glasses off your face ah. and you won't notice it. Oh, um, Really impressive. But he, he carries a, a business card around. And sometimes if he sees people pulling this three-card Monty, he has a fake wallet. And he'll position himself so that they'll try and take it. And they'll take it and he'll, have, he'll hand them his business card. That's <laughs> says professional thief. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Well, then there's the... The folks who bury you in facts. Yep. Because they figure that the more professional they sound, the more successful they sound, the more they can be very specific about what they're doing, the more you'll buy into it. Yep. I guess an analogy of that might be Theranos, right? I mean, mm -hmm. 
this was some impressive operation. And when you talk about high-profile people who can be scammed, uh, yeah. that was the list of who's who of the Western world who got scammed by that. I think it's a fascinating case because it highlights, first of all, that highly successful people who might view themselves as very good critical thinkers were taken by that one, right? That, that board of directors had retired generals and admirals. It had a you know, prominent secretary of state who were major leaders and world, world figures, right? And they were taken by it. They weren't necessarily biotech experts. And a lot of biotech experts didn't want anything to do with Theranos. It was a lot of California tech money and not as much sort of biotech money. For, I think for good reason that people wanted to kind of have a feel for this. They had, it seemed really appealing. The idea of it was a really compelling narrative. And that, that was one of those sort of big cases that used all of these sorts of principles um, to good effect. Right. The idea that you were talking about a very rapid banter with a lot of facts thrown at you. Sometimes that plays into what we call the hook of precision, where people will give a concrete specific number associated with something that doesn't actually have any bearing in reality. So we can do over a thousand tests with this mini single drop of blood. Never could, right? But that concrete number, instead of saying, oh yeah, we have a lot. No, it's like we can do 1,000 and whatever. That precision is something that usually is great. If it's not true, that's a problem. So precision, if somebody can actually genuinely give you a number to a great degree of precision, and it's based on a good understanding, that's really cool. Right, so physicists can measure a constant down to, you know, however many decimal places, and the precision they're fighting with there is maybe the eighth decimal place or something. Mm -hmm. For most human behavior, we don't have that level of precision. But if you give people precision, they tend to assume that there's something underlying it. And this can be for something as dumb as like the price of a house listing, right? If you give it to a concrete number like, you know, it's three hundred seventy-eight thousand five hundred, as opposed to you know, 380,000. The more precise number will lead people to negotiate less and end up paying a higher price because they kind of intuitively assume that if there's that much precision, there must have been a reason for it. There must have been something behind it. Maybe the comparables were more precise and more detailed. And we don't tend to think about the way that that influences us, that we just jump right in and say, oh, that's precise. And it just keeps us from thinking about it more critically. Let's talk about weight loss. Most of us have been there, struggling with the ups and downs. You lose some weight, then it creeps back. But forget those endless cycles of juice cleanses, soup diets, and the latest fad workouts. There's a better way. The Rope Body Program pairs a weekly weight loss shot with a real lifestyle change so you can lose weight and actually keep it off. Need support? Rope's got you covered every step of the way. And guess what? You can do it all from the comfort of your own home. No more doctor's appointments, no more waiting rooms. It's that simple. Ready to take charge of your weight? Head over to row.co slash Adam to sign up today. Average weight loss is 15 to 20% in a year. That's with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to row.co slash Adam. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash A-D-A-M. This spring, get out there, enjoy the weather and recapture the magic of riding a bike. 
with electric e-bike. With an amazing variety of models built for riders of all abilities, it's never been easier to fall in love with riding again. Plus, every electric e-bike ships free and only requires quick, toolless assembly. This is my first ever e-bike, and the experience has just been great. I was a little bit intimidated at first because I hadn't gone biking in a while, but the 500-watt motor that the electric e-bike comes with really gives you a nice little boost, especially if you're trying to go uphill or pick up some speed. Data shows that e-bike riders take their bike out more often. That means... You get more exercise, more exploration, and wait for it, fresh air. And riding an e-bike isn't like, it's not cheating. It's just making it possible for you to be out there longer on each ride. And speaking of things going a little slower, you can finance electric e-bike for as little as $49 a month. Get into spring with electric e-bikes, the number one selling e-bikes in the nation. Get your adventure started at electricebikes.com. And please mention that What the Hack with Adam Levin sent you in the post-checkout survey. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C ebikes.com So uh, just to zoom out here a little bit for our listeners, if they are considering playing three-card Monty, um, which they shouldn't. Don't. Or if they're, yeah. <laughs> Don't. Or if they're looking for a contractor, looking to buy a house or uh, invest in some big new uh, hot stock or something like that. Crypto. Yeah, yeah don't. don't. Yeah. <laughs> Um, outside of just don't, is there one piece of advice that you would give to avoid falling for a scam? You know, I'm not sure that there's any single piece of advice that works well for everything, but uh, there are a lot of questions you can ask yourself that if you take a step and take a step, pause and ask yourself a question, one, one way to think about whether you might be in a situation where you're at risk of being scammed is if I were a scammer, what would I do? Right. If, yeah. if I were a scammer trying to fool me, mm-hmm. what would I do? Right. How would I do it? Yeah. And often if you ask that question, you'll realize I couldn't tell. Right. The things you'd come up with doing would be very similar to what was happening right then. And you wouldn't be able to tell if it was a scam or not because you're not thinking in the way that they would. So as soon as you start thinking the way a scammer would, then you realize what they might be up to. Right. So if somebody were hiring a contractor and say, okay, if I were a scammy contractor, if I were somebody who was trying to scam somebody, take their money and then not complete the work, what would I say and do? Well, I'd tell people all of my success stories. I would tell people to ignore the cases that were, you know, negative cases and they were just disgruntled people. Um, I'd say all of those sorts of things. And if they're saying all those sorts of things, it's like, okay, maybe these are red flags. Maybe they're not, but maybe they are. So that's that's one of my favorites. There are more subtle ones you can use that are simple in other contexts. One of my favorites is, is that really true? Just asking yourself, is that really true? And I think this is one of those things that can help us from accidentally sharing information that is ac- is not true, right? It can help us avoid spreading disinformation. Most of us don't want to spread disinformation. We don't want to mislead people, right? And But we have a tendency to sort of share or forward things that align with our beliefs. So you get information that kind of aligns with your beliefs. It sounds kind of cool. It's like, oh yeah, I want to share that with all my friends. And you repost it. Just pausing for a second saying, is that really true? Mm -hmm. And if it weren't, how would I know? Can cause you to take a step before you share it with other people and potentially spread misinformation. So that's that's great advice. My daughter, uh, who is at University of Michigan and and studying (laughs) neuroscience, so she's sort of in the bucket you would appreciate. Her (laughs) favorite thing to say in the face of things that are patently false or perhaps a little squishy, she will say, but that's not true. And then if you continue, she'll say, yes, but that never happened. 
and, <laughs> and 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 it works for like the high functioning Rain Man guy mm-hmm. uh, in Utah yep. making the seven point six point one whatever you know yep. uh, return on your dough to a lot of things. I think that it comes down to, for me, hearing you talk today, what it comes down to is listening for the many different ways in which people say, how does that sound to you? And, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to answer the question thoughtfully and say, that sounds like a scam to me, you know? Yeah. You know, I know there's no contractor available for three months, but I can do it next week. The only thing is you're going to have to, I need to know that you're actually down. So you're going to give me a $500 deposit. Yep. You know, how does that sound? It sounds terrible. Get out of here. Yeah. So in other words, what you're yeah. saying is one of the greatest contributions that any of us can make to society is not to pass something along unless we feel comfortable that it's the real deal. And, you know, and the real question is, can I tell that it's the real deal? Right. So if you're not sure, I think people are too quick to kind of share things because it's, it's fun to share things and you get approval for sharing things and people mm-hmm. like it, mm-hmm. right, when you share something cool. Mm-hmm. And if it's just something cool, if it's just, you know, a cat video or something, it's like, okay, fine. But if it's you know, something political or something about science or some, uh, some radical claim, taking a second and saying, okay, is, is that really true? And how would I know? What would I need to know in order to know that that's true? Can stop a lot of stuff, right? So you get a crypto offer. Like, well, is that true? Well, I don't know. How would I know? What would I need to know in order to verify this? And I think we often don't think about how much information we really should have before forming an opinion, mm-hmm. before actually having an idea about whether something is worth doing or not. Mm-hmm. Crypto is one of those classic cases that it taps into all of these sorts of hooks. It uses celebrity endorsements. It promises outlandish returns on short investments. It promises these underlying formulas or models that are supposed to be amazing and, and defeat all of these sort of standard approaches. It tells you you're going to be able to get these returns really quickly, right? It has all of the hallmarks of classic Ponzi schemes, you know, guaranteeing big returns in short windows. But how many of us actually understand how blockchain works, the math of it behind it? How many of us could actually explain one of those models to anybody? Now, I'm going to step in like the big bad scammer and say, mm-hmm. you know, you can listen to Dan. Sounds reasonable. Or you can make $100 in the next 10 minutes. So it's up to you. You listen to Dan, sounds reasonable, or you make a hundred yep. bucks in the next 10 minutes. Totally exactly. up to you. Now listen, the 10 bucks that you need to give me in order to make that hundred dollars in the next 10 minutes, isn't yep. a very high price. And if I'm a scammer, you only lost 10 bucks. I'm gonna get yep. that 10 bucks, Dan. A lot of people will pay that 10 bucks. Yep. A lot of people also will play the lottery even though they're never gonna win it. Any parting words for us, Dan? I think one of the things that we should do is be more kind in thinking about people who have fallen for these sorts of scams. It's very easy to look at somebody who made a mistake, fell for a scam, and as a result of that, you know, was in in dire straits. It's easy to look at them and say, oh, yeah, they were just clueless. They were just gullible. I would never have fallen for that. And I think that's an uncharitable way to look at things. I mean, yes, sure, some people are going to be more gullible than others, but Everybody can be fooled if they're not careful and if they're not, if they're targeted in the right ways. We all can be taken in, even if we view ourselves as very skeptical. So I think 
treating treating other people the same way that we would want to be treated if we happened to fall for something like that is something worth considering. I think the optimist in me would argue that over time, we're going to be aware that it's so much easier to create fake information. And every student going through high school and college right now is, I mean, so many of them are using things like ChatGPT already Yeah. Um, that it becomes apparent that you know, you can't tell whether something was AI generated or human generated. You can't. Which means that maybe people will become a little more skeptical and look for validation of what they're reading before they believe it. And and the optimistic view is that maybe people will be more willing to look when they realize how easy it is to fake things. And yeah. we're only now kind of entering that territory where fake images and and you know fake prose are becoming more pervasive. Right. It, it, it was always possible to do fake images. Mm -hmm. you know, politicians have done that forever. But it's now much easier to, to fake things that look pretty close to genuine. Yeah. So my hope is that maybe people will realize, okay, I can't trust things just because somebody's sharing them and they match my beliefs. And maybe we'll go back to having some sort of verification before people will you know, pass it along. Because they'll recognize, hey, this could very easily be fake. And I don't have an easy way of knowing. That's the optimist view. Dan Simons, we can't thank you enough for talking with us today. And your book, Nobody's Fool, that you co-wrote with Christopher Chabri, it's available anywhere books are sold. So everyone, go out there and buy it. Just make sure you go to the right places where books are sold, so you really buy the book. <laughs> make sure that it's a book. <laughs> Not Amazon.com. That's right. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Dan. It was very nice to meet you. Thanks, Dan. Thank Great you. to meet you. Thanks for having me on. Now it's time for the Tin Force One. Our paranoid takeaway to help keep you safe online. Travis, you said you got something kind of upsetting via email or, I don't know, was it snail mail? It was snail mail, yeah. Um, I got a letter in the mail saying that my daughter's information had been compromised in a data breach. What kind of information? Well, they always use the term may have been compromised, but it sounds like it's the full rundown, including name, address, social security number. It's not great, but... Do you know who was breached? I was actually her pediatrician. It does bring up the potential for a kind of identity theft that people might not be fully aware of, which is medical identity theft. And when you're talking about the kind of identity theft that can flow from that, you're talking about everything from account takeover, opening yeah. new accounts, getting medical treatment in your name, committing criminal acts, your children becoming victims of identity theft. I mean, it is the full Monty. Yeah, and the other thing is, because your family member was uh, compromised, you might think, well, you're safe. You might not be, because that information can be a foothold to your information. And it might be that your child's granular information might be the very way you get into, someone gets into your mortgage, not theirs, because they don't have one, but you do, and it's worth a lot of money. We could all be compromised with this. Everybody. Money. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most, if not the most expensive form of identity theft. The uh, statistic I looked up said that the average cost to the victim is over $22,000. Well, it's not just financial though, because if somebody goes in and gets something fixed or checked or worked on or how, whatever you want to say, you could end up not being able to get that very same treatment because your insurer is going to be like, you just got, you know, an appendectomy. You can't have two. <laughs> yeah, and it also uh, it depends on what or how someone's using your plan. But um, for instance, I was just reading about a woman who had her purse stolen, including her driver's license, 
and her insurance card. And um, she went through all the right steps. She canceled her credit card. She got no identification. But two years later, she was arrested because the thief in question used her medical plan to get over 1,700 opioid prescriptions. Listen, even if you have a different blood type showing up on your medical record, that simple, stupid little difference it could kill you. Unless you're a universal donor, I guess. So a lot can go wrong. And, you know, doctors may not know that it's wrong. So you really have to take care of yourself here. Well, it goes back to what we talked about with David Maiman. Identity theft isn't just limited to your social security number anymore. Your driver's license, medical card, anything connected to you can be used to commit identity crimes. All right. Okay. Enough of the scare tactics here. What can people do? Well, the first thing is to protect your medical information, like your insurance number, as carefully as you would your social security number. Wait, fine, but that can be pretty hard. Unlike your social security card, you need to carry your driver's license and insurance information in case something happens, right? Yeah, totally. But monitor your health care, too, and that of your kids or your other dependents in the same way you would check your credit. So my daughter's in elementary school, and if I happen to look up her records and find out that she has Vicodin prescriptions in her name, I'll know something's up. But you should also, every time you get an explanation of benefit statements from your health insurer, look at it and, and make sure that the person who got that treatment, who had that appointment, was actually you. Right. And, and, and if you see something that was, you know, in your name, but wasn't, you didn't get it, that's another kind of fraud. Absolutely. And if you have your wallet or purse stolen, ask your health insurer to provide a new account number in addition to a new card. Listen, most doctor's offices are going to make sure that your information is up to date and they'll give you an opportunity to, to uh, verify that. Uh, don't blow them off. Just take a look. Make sure it's right. And that's our tinfoil swan. What the Hack with Adam Levin is a production of Loud Tree Media. You can find us online at adamlevin.com and on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Adam K. Levin.